0: Hey everybody, welcome to episode number four of The Narrative. I'm your host, Jeff Gallet. I'm so happy that you found the podcast. If this is your first listen, I encourage you to subscribe and give us a review on your platform of choice. Also, go back later and listen to the first few episodes. I find stories really interesting and I find the storytellers themselves fascinating. So the idea behind this podcast is to meet people who are great storytellers and to get to know them. Peter Wardell is a remarkable storyteller. He uses comedy and award-winning classical magic, not only to entertain people, but also to communicate and simplify very complex stories, including for business audiences. From doing street corner shows in London's Covent Garden, to working on cruise ships, at trade shows, and across countless headliner performances, Peter has honed his craft to the level that he is the first performer in the 100-year history of the world-famous magic circle to win both Stage Magician of the Year and Close-Up Magician of the Year. Peter was also invited to perform at the highest level of magic, the Palace Theater at the Magic Castle in Hollywood. He's also hosted a show on the Discovery Channel. All of this after starting his career as a chemical engineer. Peter's is an amazing story, maybe even a magical one. So Peter, welcome to The Narrative. Really wonderful to have you here today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for remembering me, I should say, would not it? <laughs> well, I think that what people will find out over the next hour, hopefully, is that it wasn't difficult to remember you. You're actually pretty darn memorable. Um, and I wanted to actually touch on that, Mike. You know, the background, the way we met was um, we hired you to work on our stand in an event in London a few years ago. And uh, it was really remarkable because I was able to see firsthand, and not just in a single quick performance, but over a few days how you were able to use illusion and sleight of hand and magic to engage with people and tell them a story. And it was funny because I told people while we were there, you actually understood our value proposition better than some of our own people did. You were able to read that and draw people out of that and get that in. It was, it was remarkable. And I'm just curious, you know, how, how did that develop? How did you get there from starting out as a guy who graduated university with a degree in chemical engineering? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's been, um, it has been a very kind of circuitous route, to be honest with you. Um, so I've always been a performer. I've always wanted to be a perform- performer. Since I was a kid, I, I performed. But I was also quite academically sort of sound. And my dad was an engineer. And, you know, so for me, going in, going in and getting a degree was, although I wanted to be an actor, that was kind of, kind of my dream was to be an actor. But... Actually, funny enough, we had, I had a friend whose father was a professional actor while I was at school and they, he, he took me to one side one day and said, look, I know you want to do this, but my advice, get a proper education first. <laughs> so I took you. his advice and I went and got, got the degree um, and ironically have never used it since um, in, the, in the sense of what it is. I mean, chemical yeah. engineering, it's not something you you know, you you use on a daily basis unless you are a chemical engineer. Right. But you know, the the engineering side of things still with me. I mean, I still take things apart much to my wife's sort of uh, disgruntlement, you know, but um, so I went from there and I I then pursued what I wanted to be, which was an actor. And so after, after working for a year as an engineer for one of my, um, it's funny actually, because I had a, I was not a very good engineer. I'll be very honest with you here. I wasn't a very good chemical engineer. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't, There was no joy in it for me. But I still became the chairman of the Chemical Engineering Society. And I think that's interesting because I became the chairman of the Chemical Engineering Society because I told the better story. Right. When it came to presenting to the other students, to the student body, I was a performer and I told a better story and I made them laugh and I engaged with them. And, you know, and when you're a 20, 21-year-old student, that's what you want. You want someone who's going to sort of, yeah. you know, the more you laugh, the more chance you've got. If you go in with serious issues for a bunch of 20-year-olds, you're dead in the water, you know. <laughs> so, right, right. Um, so so I, became the, I became the chairman of this engineering society, but I was, a, I, I mean, I left with a 2-2 degree, which is kind of sort of as middle of the road as you can mm-hmm. possibly get but I had, I did more acting at university than I'd done before. I was in, a, I, even all the way through my final year, I was in plays. I spent as much time in the drama department as I did in the, in the engineering department. And, and so when I left, I actually got a job through one of my, and my first job as an engineer, my only job as an engineer was with a tutor of mine. He was my tutor, in my final year at university, and he ran a, a small consulting business and he wanted somebody to write the reports. And the one thing I could do was, I don't like to use the phrase, but is bullshit. I, I, could, I could make dull things sound interesting. relatively interesting. It's that, yeah. you know, I could kind of talk around the subject and make people, make people think they understood. So that's what I did for a year. And again, didn't, I mean, I, I didn't enjoy it. I wanted to be an actor. Um, and that's what I ended up doing. I ended up training as an actor, moving to London, trained as an actor. And... You know, became instantly unemployed, (laughs) Uh, and from then, from there, and this is kind of where it's it's you know it switches. I then, as an unemployed actor, I first of all got a job in Harrods selling magic for the Christmas period, Um, and through a series of events, ended up as a Covent Garden street performer, and and that's where I kind of my career as a performer really started to sort of change, because I did love it. And um, I found my sort of place, really,
0: my family. So I've got to imagine that uh, for your father, who is an engineer, and then you go to university and you come out with this chemical engineering degree, which at the end of the day, no one really cares what your grade point was. They care about you, the fact that you graduated, now you've got this degree that says chemical engineering. And then a couple of years later, you're, I'm going to be an actor, and he probably rolled his eyes a little bit. And then the next thing, you know, you're street performing in Covent Garden. Was that how was that to deal with from a family perspective?
1: Was you it, you know, what my dad is he, he was always very good. He was always kind of look, do what makes you happy. But, uh, you know, on the other side, he was always someone who said, and if you fall flat on your face, you pick yourself up. I'm not going to be there. You know, he's very always been like that, and he's, he's still like that now, you mm-hmm. know. You know, you you kind of—he's there. He'll say no. You you are you are. you make your bed, you lie in it. And he yeah. was very much kind. Of, he's very kind of hands off in that respect. I mean, I love him to bits, my dad. He's a great guy. But he was, you know, that's your choice. That's your choice. Um, so there was never any resistance from them, uh, not to my face anyway. <laughs> <laughs> there may have been some, there may have been some resistance sort of in the background. But you know, to my face, he was very much kind of like that's what you want to do. I think he always knew I wanted to be, I mean, he he did know I always wanted to be a performer because I mean, you know, all the way through school, I was in, I was in a school production, a school play, whether it was a musical, whether it was a dance production, anything that allowed me to sort of get on stage and present. I I did. I did local competitions, drama. I was always, so he knew that was in me and I was also quite good at it. You know, he he was, my dad's very realistic. I mean, if I'd been crap, I think he would have said, look, you you crap don't do it you know just become an engineer but as it was you know i think you thought yeah he's he's quite good let's see how it goes and then sort of 30 years later i'm just so far down the road now (laughs) so
0: you mentioned you worked at harrods in the magic department selling magic had you been exposed to magic much
1: were you did you have your own background in magic before yeah, that was, or was that the beginning? I was a fan of magic as a kid. I bought, you know, as a kid, I'd growing up, I had done magic and I would kind of boxed it all away. I'd, I'd had quite a few books, quite, and actually going back and looking at them, I had some quite advanced books on magic as a kid. And you know, for my 12th birthday, I got taken for a trip to London to see a magician called Paul Daniels in a show. And we went to a magic shop and I bought some, you know, some magic stuff and I had it all still in a box. And so... I knew a bit about magic and following my degree, when I, I traveled for, uh, for about four or five months in a camper van around Europe in the days you were allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I took a book. One of the books I took with me was a book called Expert Card Technique because I found it. And I thought, well, we'll have plenty of time. I'll take a packet of cards in this old magic book. Not realizing actually, I mean, now, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly advanced book on sleight of hand. So <laughs> I sort of threw myself into the deep end. But yeah, I've always had an interest in it but I'd kind of sidelined it for, you know, for life and in general. And I would
0: imagine that just the, the, the root of that, being able to do that in kind of a non-pressured environment, no, I shouldn't say non-pressured, but a, an environment like Covent Garden where you're seeing hundreds or thousands of people over the course of a few days and you're able to practice and do things without a lot of risk as a rep, reputationally or
1: confidence-wise helped, or was it, was it good to just be and able to practice it, the craft? It's, it's interesting now because i mean i i get to speak to a lot of um or, I, you know a lot of young performers will, will sort of say you know, or want to start in Covent Garden um there are pressures in Covent Garden and there aren't then and, and there aren't pressures in Covent Garden so you know the thing with Covent Garden if you know you can go out in the morning in a chicken suit realize it doesn't work and by the afternoon be wearing a tuxedo no one knows you mm-hmm. know you've got that opportunity it's it's what i think you know it's that kind of is it called churn and burn in the industry? Yeah, you can yeah. just sort of turn around. You yeah. can just kind of get, you can work, you can fail fast. You can fail fast. The problem here is you have to fail, you have to succeed ultimately because if you don't, you, don't you will starve. Yeah. Because you know, money in the hat is your um, is, is your reward in the end. It's the only way you can survive. And one of the dangers with that, and, and this is you what know, I found over the years, is that what tends to happen is people then tend to migrate towards a similar Thing because they look, it's that whole thing Oh, that works. I saw that working. I'm going to do that. And so, in, you know, the, the, when I first started in this sort of late 80s, I was right at the tail end of what was a really creative time of, of street performing. And there were some guys who just, you know, there was a, there was a bit more money sloshing about before, you know, it was before the recession, before mm-hmm. the 80s. It was 86, whenever. And there was, so there was money sloshing about a bit. And so there was some really, really creative acts. I mean, brilliantly wacky alternative. It was the alternative comedy scene. A lot of the alternative comedy guys came from the street. And so there's some great acts. But as I stayed there longer and longer, you in the same way that kind of all cars end up looking the same, you know, street form has started to look the same. They got higher. So either on a unicycle or a pole or a slack rope, right? because then you could deal with more people. You could look for. And so you, you elements were lost, but yeah, there, there is a pressure. There is a pressure to make money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you want to survive doing it.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine just an ability to continually practice and, you know, can continually work on your, on your routines and your ability to deliver your, your, your. um...
1: Yeah. I mean, I've, I'm, I suppose I'm lucky in the sense that, I mean, if, if I have a skill, if I have any skill at all, that skill is the ability to stand up and read an audience and work an audience. And so I know when I'm dying, I know when I'm in trouble and I, you know, and I know when I'm going well, um and so I didn't I I, I very rarely the one what you do in Covent Garden you tended to practice while you did it you know you I would I would I I was saying that you you rehearsed with an audience is Mm -hmm. what you did you practiced backstage so I'd be at the back of the pitch waiting for my time and I'd be running through the routines you know getting the technique the the mechanics Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and then I'd rehearse in front of an audience and yeah. if I died I died and then I'd try again later so um I, I remember that the the way that we got
0: introduced to you or that I got introduced to you we had a a colleague of yours or an acquaintance of yours who came and did a, a training did a fun thing for our executive off-site in London and he taught us some tricks and he taught us how to deliver and do some things and we're a bunch of non-performing non we didn't have any time to practice and But it was interesting because I realized then, and this is why we then asked to have you come back and do the thing that we did on our stand, because I realized then that so much of what he was doing, there was a component of it that was the mechanics of actually delivering the illusion or the sleight of hand, but much more of it was reading the audience and diverting diverting my attention to something else while he was doing something and being able to just manipulate me. And I'm sitting there going... I'm, I just watched you do this to somebody else. I'm not going to let you manipulate me. Damn it. You just manipulated me. And it was just, it was an interesting process because I always, I just never viewed it through that prism. I thought it was much more mechanical process than the psychol the psychological aspect of, of performing in that way.
1: Yeah. I think, I mean, there's, you know, there's an expression I use a lot, which is the trick is not the magic, you know? Um, that's the, that's the key thing with all of this is the trick is not the magic. Um, and I think sometimes the psychological element of magic is overplayed in the sense that I think people think there's more to it than there actually is. Mm-hmm. Or it, you know, the psych, it, it, it's, it's not particularly, I'm going to downplay it here. It's not particularly, some of the psychology and it's fantastic. And it, I think some magicians take it a long way, but ultimately it's about engaging people and that's not necessarily a magic thing, you know, in the same way that you can get, you know, you can put a, an album on and not realise it's come to the end because you've been lost in the track you know that's not clever it's just the ability for you to be engaged in something and that's what good performers do is they engage and I think you know ultimately this will come around to you know the the whole thing of story is that what that's what story does it it engages Um, it's not a demonstration it's not a sort of a shopping list it's it's about engagement and that's
0: yeah and and the
1: psychology that's really quite straightforward actually <laughs> and, and that's what I observed when I was watching you
0: when we were working together over those few short days because the you would engage with people at a level it was you, maybe the icebreaker of having the engagement was the fact that you were drawing them in to observe some a trick but you actually were able to engage with them through that process and I would think that that's a unique skill set I think you know our concern my concern was beforehand We'll hire somebody, and it's not any different than hiring the person who, you know, back in the day 30 years ago when you hired the leggy blonde and high-heeled shoes to stand in your yeah. stand and draw people in. But that wasn't what this was because I think you took the effort to learn our story and quickly grab onto a piece of it. Our story was around this thing we were calling digital body language, so it tied into this ability to observe body language. But I think you very rapidly grabbed onto that, but it was more the ability – you utilize the tool to then draw somebody in, have a conversation with them as you were engaging with them, which was a really remarkable, um, unique thing. So I think there's probably performers out there that don't do that as well. And they're probably not as successful as you've been in doing that.
1: Well, I think, I mean, I think what this comes back to this thing I was saying about being able to read an audience. So, I mean, if you, when, when, I do trade show exhibition work for clients, you know, you, you, you present them, you know, up front with something. you say, I'm going to do this, this and this, and here's my script. And this is what I will do. And it contains all your key lines. And yeah. and most of the time I know that I won't do 90% of what I've told people I'm going to do because ultimately you, what you rehearse in front of an audience. So the first two, three, four people I get on the first day, I will kind of go, no, this is, it, this is too, cause it's all too sterile. Right. Right. And so if I approach, this is, when you're selling something to a, to a company as a, as a performer, you kind of have to talk the corporate talk in right. order for them to have a little bit of faith in what you're going to do. And then you've got to kind of go, well, actually, I, you know, deep down I know I'm not going yeah. to do any of yeah. this. I'm just going to do what I know works. Yeah. And you will be happy with that, you know, ultimately. Because otherwise you're you're just buying another, another salesman, you know, and you don't yeah. want that. You yeah. want someone who's going to actually... Dance with the audience a little bit and sort of play with them, and it is a push and pull, isn't it? And it, you know, it, it, and that's what kind of if I said, Right, here's my script, this is what I'm going to do. It, it's, I, I've never been able to do that. I've never been able to really sort of just stick to the here's your script, this is what you're going to get. Yeah. So you've
0: been performing and doing those kind of gigs as well as on stage gigs, and I know you were doing a lot of cruise ship travel pieces. And then yeah. 15 months ago, this <laughs> ugly COVID thing hits. And I'm sure it just completely changed. I mean, you, you, and what was interesting that the thing that's, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I had always had in mind the idea of having you join me here. But I were connected on LinkedIn and I've been following and I've seen the things that over the last year, as you've adapted your business and adapted what you do. To function in a COVID world, but it had to be just a massive change for you from when you when you're so such a performer and so good one on one with people in an engaging way, and now you're doing things differently than that, and you're doing it from where you're sitting now. It's just got to be a dramatic change in the way you've done business.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like you know, one of the it's a, it's a tough one. So when so for me, what happened in, at the end of March, twenty twenty. I, I was about 2020 was the best year I'd ever had in my diary as a performer to be able to say on the 1st of January, to be able to say I have a full diary, which I did have. I was booked solidly all the way through to December the 5th Um, and we'd moved house with, you know, it was. And then on March, I got off my last ship on March the 15th and then literally the following three weeks, dump, 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 everything Just fell over, and every single booking I had in the diary disappeared. And unlike some of the younger guys who are, there's some guys who kind of love magic. I make this very clear. I don't love magic. Magic for me is, I now is is a tool. It's a mechanism for Mm -hmm. what I do. But there's guys out there who love magic, who were right on it, who are much more switched on than I was, and they, you know, they were straight onto the. The Zoom show, the Zoom magic. I mean, I've got friends who've who've actually probably had the best. Well, I know for a fact have had the best fifteen months in their careers. You know, they've made because it's you're no longer geographically limited. You can do ten shows a day in ten different countries. You know, and that's what some of them were doing. Yeah, I was very very slow to respond. It's a little bit like turning around a tanker. You know, I was I I got hit by the there was a degree of um, mourning, I suppose. And you know that (laughs) ultimate shock, and this denial, and me saying it'll be fine by the summer, it's going to be okay, and you know it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And so I was, I was quite slow to 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 make the change. And and, but I did, I did make the change. And yeah, I moved, I moved online. And although that, you know, in no way compensated me for what I'd lost, it it was a really interesting um, exercise creative exercise because you are you are dealing you're doing what i would normally do hands-on with people you're doing it over you know through a screen and it's already doable um and i think one of the benefits was that people were so bored with being on zoom mm-hmm. and so bored with looking at you know the, the, when someone actually came on who'd made an effort with their their scene you know yeah. that they set and this is something i've talked to clients about since you know this idea you set the scene you you you're now you're competing now with YouTube. You're competing with, you know, production value. So if you're looking at 26 beige boxes of people looking at people's noses because the camera angle is wrong, it, it's it's quite easy to stand out on Zoom. That's
0: typical, right? We're all sitting here. You know, we're all looking at the inside of people's bedrooms or, or yeah. other rooms and there's nothing to it. And so it all blurs together. And then I think when it comes to what you do, I had this conversation with with a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago about how. One thing that I've seen the pandemic change is the way like, television production is done. There's there no way a large television organization, news or sports, would have a guest on with this level of video quality. And now you kind of, if you're a performer and you're performing professionally, I'd imagine you have to set yourself apart from that to a certain degree, or try to set yourself apart from that to become more like you're watching a show, like you'd watch any other
1: show. Well, you do and you don't. I mean, in, in one of the guys who did really well um, right off the bat once lockdown first kicked in was a guy um, in the UK who literally did it with his laptop laptop on his kitchen counter but he was one of the first to do it and he mm-hmm. was kind of in, and, and I know he did extremely well and I think he's kind of stuck with that sort of guerrilla style performance you know that very much kind of whereas for someone like me I just couldn't do that it's just not in my makeup to do that and so the fact that when we moved house, I hadn't done any Zoom shows before we moved, and then I, in the place we moved to, I, I have a studio office, mm-hmm. and you know, so I've made an effort. I've, I've painted the back wall. I've, you know, I've I've made a set. I've got. I've always had studio lighting for stuff that I've done before, mm-hmm. and so when I do it, I've made that effort. So you can do. It's you know, it's different ways of differentiating, isn't it? I mean, yeah. uh, you're either the first to do it, or you then become you, you go in on quality. You know, I've got professional audio equipment and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But, it's, um, I think, I mean, I, I talk to, one of the things I do is I um, I teach, a, every year I teach a group of doctors at uh, a medical school in Brighton on uh, communication, uh, sort of advanced communication. And I was talking to them about, you know, just the idea of just create a setting. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes five minutes to make sure that what you're, you know, you've got people, if you're sitting in front of something that's, it's like walking on stage with your, you know, your fly undone, zipper undone. <laughs> Yeah. It, if you've got something behind you that is more interesting than the topic you're talking about, then you're, you're, you're making it difficult for yourself. So yeah. yeah. So set the scene, I think is very important. Um, and that's what I've tried to do. And, you know, then you end up spending huge amounts of money on lenses that you, <laughs> you kind of don't tell your wife about because it costs <laughs> so much money. You? Um, but then
0: it also, you know, how, how did that affect? Cause you were, you were traveling a lot. I mean, you were on the road, I'm imagining those 300 and something days that you had scheduled in 2020, they weren't all in London. No, I was, right? yeah,
1: I was think in 2020, I was due to be at home for maybe four weeks from March to through to December I think i had four weeks at home and the rest of the time I was away, which was going to be tough on the family. And, you know, it, we, we, but we'd all kind of steeled ourselves for this, for the, for the experience because it's, it's essential. It's, yeah. You know, it was essential to do. And in that respect, I've actually loved, the pandemic you know i've been at home a lot um well i've been at home <laughs> the whole time <laughs> yeah. um i've worked from home i love working from home I, lo- I actually really really enjoy doing stuff online i mean i've still got stuff queued lined up to do online uh, more online performances to do and i really enjoy them now uh, i enjoy the fact that i can be sitting in front of the tv by nine o'clock at night with my family watching you know family guy and there you go rather than having to do a two and a half hour drive back from London, you know? So it's, it's been great in that respect. Yeah. It's just obviously, yeah, as I said, it's kind of, you're not, it's being able to sort of compensate for the, for the regularity of the work, which I I wasn't quick enough to sort of capture. Yeah.
0: So I know that with um, speaking of family guy that you also, you don't just do magic. You also do comedy. I know you intersperse the two of them together into your performance, but the, is the comedy something that comes really naturally to you as well? Or is it or just, is that you just have a sense of humor and you develop this ability to deliver your performances ingrained with comedy?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's weird because I'm probably the least funny person in my family. Cause you know, I've yeah. got, I come from a sort of my family are all from the North, from the North of England, you know, so I've got uncles and my brother, my brother is what I would describe as, he's, as a hairy ass welder. I mean, he you know, left school with no qualifications. He's a, he's a welder. He's a shop floor boy. I mean, he's doing extremely well now. He's, but it, we've always the, his, the sense of humour in the family, and the northern sense of humour is phenomenal. So you know, I've I've just kind of cultivated that really. Um, but I find it, I find not trying to be funny makes you funnier. I think it, I think one of the dangers people you know when people try to be funny, yeah. if you push funny, it's yeah. not funny. And you see that on TV, don't you? You see that even with well-known comedians who are having to churn out, you know hours of material when you push funny, it's not that funny. And
0: yeah, there's an interesting thing. I, I just, um, I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about comedy. And I guess there's been some comments lately from comedians, like even Billy Crystal, Dave Chappelle made something that comedians right now are f- afraid. They're afraid to do new material because anything you do is so polarizing, no matter what it is comedy, you know, comedy used to be so free. You could say whatever you wanted and it was just funny. And now anything you say, somebody will take a piece of it and twist it around and polarize it and divide, use it to divide. It's just so they're all they're these really these people who you would think have enough of a resume to be able to say, I can kind of say something and people will realize I'm just being funny. Can't don't feel comfortable doing that right now, which is really, I think, sad, but.
1: Oh, it's, it's it's devastating, and I think I mean you've got to take you tip your hat to some of the guys who still do it. I mean you've got guys like Ricky Gervais who basically yeah. says what he wants to say. Yeah. Um, I mean, as he says, he's rich enough to say it. You know, he yeah. doesn't he doesn't really care now. But but no, I mean, it, I, social media's got an awful lot to you know to answer for, really. I mean, because it, you know, back in back in the day, you had an act that wasn't that that you found offensive. I mean, there are acts that I you know. The, from the Northern comedy scene, actually, I mean, there were guys. We had a guy called Bernard Manning here who I wouldn't watch. I mean, I think he's deeply offensive. We've got, you know, Chubby Brown or what I can't remember his name. Just guys I wouldn't watch. But that's the thing. I wouldn't watch them. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't you buy have a ticket the ability to change the channel. Yeah. Or, you know, I wouldn't. But like you, so they're working to a room that is their room. Yeah. You know, so that's, and that's fine. I've got absolutely no problems with that. But yeah. it's so, but what happens now, isn't it, is they're in everybody's room now. Right. And that, and, or someone will go, oh, did you see this? And then it just becomes extracted and, extrapolated and and being a performer is really tough in that respect because everyone wants to cancel something now everyone's got an opinion um and uh, ricky gervais is the guy to listen to talking about all this because he's got i mean his thing you know just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right you know and i think that is people are being offended for centuries right and but it, it whatever, you know, I can say something which is inoffensive to one person offensive to another. It's just because you're offended, you know, don't worry about it too much. You know, yeah, as long as I'm of, not coming to your house and stealing from you and, you know, it's remarkable. Yeah, it's, how it's, much, it's remarkable how much thinner our
0: skin has gotten in the day since oh, social it, media, maybe it's, just because it's more in our face, but.
1: Well, it's, it's constant, isn't it? It's this constant. It's almost like you have to, if you can't, you know, I was always broke up with, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Yeah and now it's the kind of thing, if you can't just say something, you know, cause everyone's, everyone's desperate for um, sort of acknowledgement and, and, it, and <laughs> there's some great quotes from people, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, it's like, it's like writing, it was the, the Ricky about, I'm sorry to keep reading, re- yeah. I think because he, obviously he's the guy who's just said, I would do what I want. It's, he does this whole bit about guitar lessons, about putting up a sign saying, you know, if you want guitar lessons, And then someone tearing off the number and ringing you up and going, but I don't want guitar lessons, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Um, and it's absolutely right. I mean, if you, you don't want guitar lessons, you don't get guitar lessons, you know, it's very easy to, just as easy to turn off and to sort of ignore it. But the world is very polarized at the moment. I mean, you're in the States, I mean, you know, here in the UK, I mean, it's just, it's quite, it's very very sad actually. I think it's really sad. Yeah, it is
0: sad. Um, so when we first started talking about doing this, you mentioned that you're, uh, I think you've taken some of the time that you've been able to be home and started ideating on creating a book or writing a book about something. What, where, how's that going? What, what direction are you planning on going with that?
1: Well, um, I had a conversation with someone earlier this week about, well, I'm the king of the unfinished project, but I do have, I have written, um, I have my 35,000 words written. So I have the first manuscript, and I have it. I've sent it out to um, the to beta readers. But as with all of these things, for me, it's now sitting in a in in a box next to my desk, and I'll you know maybe I'll get round to it at some point when I'm back on the ships. So I'm hoping to sort of look into it. But it's it, my thing. Thinking with it was 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 the idea with it was how about engaging with people when you ha- when you're in a busy marketplace because that's what being a street performer always was you know you're stood in a busy marketplace how do you stand out from a crowd what are the things that make you stand out from the crowd and what I've written is really just it's it's, I think I've written sort of a series of 500 word essays is what I've done and I need to spend some time focusing on who it's actually for because the thing I can't do is is just add to the noise you know Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy to publish a book and say I'm an author you know but it's I'd, I'd, it, again, it's a little bit me like not wanting to do Zoom calls unless I had a nice set, unless I think, unless I'm happy with the, the quality of it and the and the content and the the purpose. Unless it has a purpose, then I probably w- won't publish it. I will at some point, I think. And I don't really know who I've written the book for, uh, and I think well, I need to get a better handle on that. You know, um, and when I've done that, I'll, I'll be able to focus a bit more on, on on putting it together.
0: So you mentioned um when you start cruising again, is there is there anything on the schedule Are things starting? I know that here yeah, I've got, States I mean, just... I've got
1: dates booked in for October. Okay. Um, but saying that the first one I had booked in for October has just canceled. Mm. So, but I still have, I mean, I, at the moment I have seven weeks booked in for the end of the year. And if that happens, great. Um, but I, you know, I've got trade shows booked in, which is interesting. Cause I've got, you know, uh, I've got a couple of trade shows, one in September, one in October booked in, As people slowly start to... And I was going to say, are are you, on a personal level, does it worry
0: you at all? Does it worry you to to be face-to-face with that many people again? I mean, I know for me, I'm having a learning experience of I'm fully vaccinated. My wife is fully vaccinated. We're just starting to feel comfortable going... Out and engaging with people because we now have this. It only took a year and a half to build in all these defense mechanisms that said, "Stay away from people." You know, just don't don't engage that way. And it's it's an interesting thing. And then I can imagine at a trade show where you can't vet people; they're just coming up to you, and or on a cruise ship even more so, where they're kind of thought of as giant incubators. Like it's got to be. Is it is is that are those thoughts? Well, no, I mean
1: the cruise ship thing. Actually, it. I mean, ironically, I think the cruise ships are going to be the. I think they're the healthiest places on the planet. Because you're vetted before you get on. There's sanitising stations. I mean, even before COVID.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, if you've ever been on a cruise ship, you'll yeah. know. I mean, I've been on a number of cruise ships where we have what's you know a code red, which is sort of when there's a, 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 a GI on board, a, not a GI, a GI, you know, gastro yeah. infection, and um, and the, the, they've got protocols in place for all of that. Yeah. You know, so it's all there, and you're contained, and it's fine. If some, you know, you can you can compartmentalise it all. So I've got absolutely no problems being on the ship. I'm a relatively healthy guy. I stay fit. I, you know, I'm fully vaccinated, and my biggest concern would be for people who aren't fully vaccinated. They think they're all right, you know, yeah. because you know. And but then that's another, you know, that's a, that's an interest storytelling thing. Actually, I one of the things, the anti-vax thing is kind of an interesting. Yeah, know, thing with, stories. but no, I've, I've got no problems with it. And ultimately, you know, you 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 take risks every day with what you do, don't you? And At some point, we we can't. We've got to stop mitigating, or we can't mitigate anymore. Right. I I mean, mean, I'm about to fly on Friday. I'm due to fly to Portugal to do a thing, and in order to go to Portugal, which is ironically more difficult now for me anyway because of Brexit. But there's there's another (laughs) story. Yeah. But I've you know I've got to have a PCR test tomorrow so that I can fly on Friday. When when I'm at the airport on Friday, I have to then take a lateral flow test so that when I fly home, I have a lateral flow because I'm coming back within 72 hours so I can have a lateral, that's on record that I've had a lateral flow test. And then when I get home, I've got to have a PCR test within two days of arriving home. And Hmm. I'm fully vaccinated and you wear a mask and the social distancing and all the events. Um, You know, I've not had a single COVID test in all of this. I've not had a single. I've not had to. I've not, mm-hmm. And within the space of five days, I'm going to have three. And you don't. How have much? To... You you can't mitigate. You can only mitigate so far, I think, with these things. Right. And then after that, you've either got to say, "Look, we're not doing it," which I think is what's going to happen again here. Yeah. Or you say, "Well, look, let we 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 can do what we can," but at some point, we've got to stop. We can't keep this going.
0: I think it's interesting the uh, that the point you made earlier about the anti-vax, and I think it just in general, and I I talked about this with another, another guest, Um, just the, I'm a you know, at my heart, I'm a marketing guy. I think at your heart, deep down inside, you're a marketing storytelling messaging guy disguised as a performer. (laughs) But what I think one of the biggest failures, the biggest failures that I've seen from the whole response, the pandemic itself, and then the vaccination process has been a failure of marketing. I just don't think we've done a good enough job as a society, in marketing the dangers and the benefits.
1: But isn't this this why anti-vaxxers? I mean, it's funny because when I teach the doctor, when I go to this university to teach doctors normally live, but, you know, last year I did it live, but this year, one of the things I talk about is the anti-vaccination crowd. And obviously I wasn't talking about COVID three years ago, but I was talking about anti-vaxxers. And the fact is, is it's because they have a better story. You know, because you say to people... you say to people, right, you take this vaccination and, well, and nothing will happen. Right. That's right. the point. You're saying you take the vaccination and nothing exciting, nothing interesting, nothing, nothing will happen. You'll be fine. It's going to be – nothing will change. Right. Whereas the anti-vaxxers say, ah, <laughs> you take that vaccine, my friend, and you're going to ha- – Bill Gates is going to be banging on your door because he's really keen to know what you're doing – you know, or you know, it's a, it's an experimental thing, or it's this and that. So they have something which is much more emotive, and you know, to get into the storytelling element a bit more. You, the, the, it's that's what the anti-vaccination, and that's what sort of certain elements of politics have. It's it's emotional, yeah. and as soon as you make something emotional, and people feel like they're fighting for something, then it becomes more, it, it, more engaging for them. Yeah. Because if you're fighting for something, then you feel like you're doing something positive. Whether it's, I mean, I mean, positive in the sense of moving forward, not positive in the sense of better for everybody else. Yeah, but yeah, because yeah. clearly it isn't. But um, but yeah, so you're right. They haven't sort of, you know, the, the, the vaccination team. Have, and, you know, we've got the NHS here in the UK and I, they've just done a, an absolutely phenomenal job in spite of the British government. Um, but it's all, you know, they're literally saying, just come and get the vaccine. And that's kind of the marketing, isn't it? Yeah, come and get the yeah, vaccine. Yeah. Um, And I think what's dripped down through the last 15 months is people have started to realize actually we better get the vaccine because this, you know.
0: Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned the cruise industry, um, or cruises and, you know, here I'm currently at, I have a house in Florida, which is where I currently am. And, you know, an awful lot of cruises happen out of the state of Florida not the part that we're in, but you know, the Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando area, there's three or four different ports and, um, Royal Caribbean. Who's the biggest, They've mandated, they say they're only going to sail if people are proof of vaccination. You have to be vaccinated to get on board one of their ships. Well, the state of Florida just passed legislation that says, no, that's an unfair business practice. That's discriminatory. So you can't do that. You can't sail from here if that's going to. So now there's this political battle going on. Whereas I look at it and think it's things like that that are the kinds of marketing angles that could help somebody. If somebody said, look if you want to go on a cruise, there's only one way you can do it, which is go get vaccinated. So there's a public health benefit, but there's an individual benefit to you who just wants to go drink in the Caribbean.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, the whole, I mean, I know, I mean, I sort of kept, you know, seeing the Florida thing and I, you know, it's, um, but you know, I I travel to Africa pretty much once or twice a year on the cruises. I've got a yellow fever certificate in my passport, which Mm -hmm. I've had, you know, for the last five years. Yeah. Well, if I don't have that, I'm not going into, you know, I'm not going in Yes. Yeah. I, I don't, und- I genuinely do not understand the problem,
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: but the problem, and I do understand the problem. The problem is is that people have been told that this is discriminatory and right. it's not discriminatory. Right. It's, it's a way of saying, you know, it's like you, you go into a restaurant and someone says, put a shirt on. You go, Oh, put a shirt on. Yeah. That's not discriminatory. That's just put a shirt on. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, if you don't want to take And well, this is the thing. If you don't want it, don't take it. Right. Bottom line, don't want it, don't take it. But don't tell me I can't take it. And don't tell me I'm wrong for you, tell it, you know, for taking take, it. Just yeah. don't take it. Yeah. Don't take it and go back and just don't go anywhere.
0: Right.
1: Or get ill. You know, I, I genuinely, I, I think this is something that's, I mean, I've, we probably shouldn't go too far down this because obviously <laughs> I, you know, my, my, my livelihood has been impacted by this phenomenally. Right. And I get quite angry with, with this attitude that, you know, there is this sort of um, entitlement. That exists now that I don't think existed five, ten years ago. Yeah, and you know, I'm not telling people to go and get the vaccine. It's not my job. You know, it's not my job to tell people. If you, I've got it. I'm done. You know, I'm done, and I've started to lose a little bit of patience with, um, with the world. You know, which yeah. is a sad thing. And, and as someone who's a performer, and I'll be, you know, I'll be very honest with you. Over the years, I've suffered with depression, and in the last sort of six months, eight months. I've had some very, very difficult periods with coming out of the COVID thing, then moving into the Brexit thing. And I just, sometimes you just kind of go, look, I just, when does it get any easier? Yeah, you know, it's, what, it's anyway, but the anti vax thing is they just have a better story. And, and the problem with storytelling like that is unless you can find something that displaces that belief, this is not a case of providing more fact. You know, this has been shown, this has been proven, research has shown this. Yes. And If matter. you just tell someone they're wrong, they're just going to embed even deeper into what they believe. You can't convince people that they're wrong. Yeah. You have to allow them to come to that belief. And that's magic. That's what misdirection is. You allow people to make that up in their own minds. You know, that's and that's, you know, coming full circle. That's what magic does. You know, you convince people that the coin is still in your hand or the ball is still in your hand. They make that up in their own minds. They're convinced that that's the case. So when it's not that they go, Oh, that's incredible. I can't see if I start telling you, Oh, it's in my hand. It's in my hand. You're going to go, no, it's not. You wouldn't. And that's what we need. We need subtlety and we need engagement on that level rather than just kind of banging our heads together, you know? Um, Yeah. But before we go, I've
0: sort of made a little thing where I'm ending all the pods with a thing I'm calling three and out. I'm just going to ask you three questions. Didn't tell you in advance, unless you listen to one of the previous ones, you'd know in advance. Quick answer. So first one, what's the most recent movie or show you've watched and or binge watched and would you recommend it?
1: Um... Not the most recent, but the one I would, because I'd just sit and watch garbage like everybody else, you know, but the, the most inspiring thing I've seen recently was a show by a magician called Derek Delgardio called In and of Itself, which was showing on Lulu, I think. Hulu, not Lulu, Hulu. Um, and Derek Delgardio is a phenomenal storyteller, phenomenal storyteller. And his show is astonishing. Okay, it's incredible. And I would I would. Have you seen it? I haven't. And it's if you get a chance to see it, it's one of those things you just kind of go, oh, my word. And it's for me, that's the sort of level of magic as because he's a magician, but he's a he's not a magician. And it's it's he is, you know, it's it's a phenomenal show. It's a phenomenal show. Cool. That's great advice. I'm going to go watch that one. So second, along the
0: same lines, what's the most recent book you've read or favorite podcast you've listened to? And would you recommend that something for the for the listeners?
1: Um, I'm in this middle of reading. There's two books I'm reading at the moment. One is one that I've gone back to revisit, um, which is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is a classic, yeah. um, which I loved it from the beginning in the sense yeah. that it was, because it's about an engineer, but it's about art and it's about creativity. It's about how, the, the way those, where those two rivers meet kind of thing. Yeah. And that's something I've always felt in my life, that I'm neither in one camp or the other. And sometimes it's difficult to sort of get my head around that. Um and but the book that I'm, I'm reading that's it's sitting on my Kindle at the moment on my desk is tight. I think it's the process, which is Seth Godin. Yep. Um, I'm a massive Seth Godin fan. Massive Seth Godin fan. I was lucky enough to do a presentation for Seth when he launched um, the Icarus Deception in the UK. I did a, 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 he did a thing called 140 Seconds, which was like a live tweet 140 characters thing where you could you pick five people to do a 142nd presentation and i did that for him and got to meet him and i've since the purple cow however many years ago that was mm-hmm. which is one of the first books i read that sort of literally changed the way that i looked at what i do um but the process by seth godin cool. and zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance
0: i uh i read zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance but it had to be right out of high school so I probably need to go back and read it again because I'm sure my life experience since then would completely it's what I'm finding what it is actually
1: it's interesting because the the copy I've got was and I it's, it's from my old girlfriend which shows how long ago it was because you know, I've been with my my wife for years but it's it's um so I, it's from back in the 80s I think it's when I was a Covent Garden performer I that I first read it and it's it's great and he's a great writer and yeah um as I say it's just that meshing together of because I'm I'm a bit of a engineering geek still deep down and i you know so it's it's, yeah it's a great
0: book so lastly um do you have a current song or artist you've got on repeat anybody that really inspires you
1: um now i had this conversation with my son yesterday i don't listen to music i i i it's i it, it, it I've just fixed a, a turntable, a Sony turntable. I've just repaired one of them because that's the kind of thing I do. Yeah. And i just need to buy an amp to run it, but I've got some old LPs. When I, but I don't, if I put music on, I tend to put it on as background. Mm-hmm. I tend to just sort of have stuff while I'm working, but I rarely, if I listen to the radio, it's talk radio. Um, so I can't ask that. Cause I don't have, I, there's not really, um, the, the song that I re- recently heard, which made me smile, which I kind of re listened to was, um, Baz Luhrmann, Sunscreen, because, you know, when I was fi- I was feeling a bit, you know, in the dumps and it's one of those great songs, isn't it? <laughs> just It's great advice. and uh, But no, I don't have a, I don't listen to music really. Well, that's okay. So cool. Well,
0: thank you, Peter, for joining me. Um, appreciate it. And hopefully we'll catch up again.
1: Thanks for having me and uh, best of luck with your endeavors. In thank the podcast. you. Thank you. You okay. as
0: well. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Narrative. Your feedback is always welcomed, as are your shares and, of course, your reviews. Please subscribe and review The Narrative on your podcast platform of choice, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.